I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Offscript. My name is Stephen Edgington. Are the culture wars already over? To discuss her new book, How Woke Won, I'm joined by the commentator and head of education and culture at the think tank Policy Exchange, Dr. Joanna Williams. Thank you so much, Joanna, for joining us. If woke has already won, should we give up the fight? No, definitely not. Uh, the reason why I called my book How Woke Won is because I really want to highlight the extent to which woke thinking has come to dominate so many of our major institutions, from the civil service to the police force, the judiciary, education, especially right the way through from nursery through to universities. Um, but I don't think that means that it's not worth pushing back against it. And hopefully what I'm trying to do with my book is to shine a spotlight on how corrosive an impact woke thinking is having on all of these institutions and really lift the lid on what's going on and allow people kind of insight into how this process has come about and what the impact is. And I think history really shows us in recent years that whenever people come to be aware of the impact that woke thinking is having, they don't like what they're seeing. And um, democracy is often the best disinfectant and means people um, really challenge and push back against it, often very successfully. Where does the word woke come from? And is there sort of a straight line from its origins to its contemporary phenomenon? Mm -hmm. No, that's a good question. Um, So the word woke actually in its political sense really originated in America about 100 years ago in the pre-civil rights era. And it was almost like a whispered warning from one black person to another to alert them to the fact that there were police officers about or, or genuinely racist people who were uh, out to lynch mob for them. I mean, this was the era of the Ku Klux Klan and um, very horrible, racist, violent acts. And it was a warning for people to kind of be on guard to protect themselves against potential violent acts. But it kind of morphed from there into a much more general political meaning of, of kind of beware of, of inequality, be awake to social injustice. And... Um, Really, just just shortly into the 2000s, this this became appropriated by movements such as Black Lives Matter in this more general political sense. And you go back to around kind of five, six years ago now, and woke became almost a, a very, very popular word on the left. People were quite keen to identify themselves as being woke. They were quick to point out that all this meant was being alert to social injustice, that it meant you you also kind of very politically correct. You had a, a heightened sense of what it meant to, to be a good person, to be anti-racist, uh, to challenge homophobia and transphobia. People were very proud to be associated with this word. You had newspapers like The Guardian and even The Times publishing guides, particularly for, for kind of adults, people of an older generation on how to be more woke or you had your, your kind of online magazines publishing your kind of Vox Pop style lists of, of how being woke can make men hotter and this kind of thing. And unsurprisingly, then people who were critical of these ideas took this word and, and used it back against people. You know, you're, you're calling yourselves woke, you are woke. And clearly people who are woke didn't like it when the word that they had adopted got turned back against them and and used essentially as an insult. So I would say over the past kind of five or six years, Woke's become very much political football. It's been played with by both the left and the right, with the left at various times. They either claim ownership of it and they claim it doesn't mean anything at all other than just being alert to social injustice, which is, I think, very, very disingenuous and dishonest of them to, to imply that. 
and the right using the word as an, an insult against them. You say that it's an American phenomenon originally. How much is that the case today? How much has it spread to sort of the Anglosphere and beyond, if you look at France, Germany, other Western countries? I think there's kind of two layers to that question. I think as a, as a phenomenon, I think it spread very, very widely within the UK, like I said, not necessarily amongst the general population, but certainly among a kind of elite managerial professional class that dominates, like I said, particularly the public sector, but, but increasingly within the private sector as well, the kind of institutions that run our country. I think that's very dominant in the US and in the UK. And I think to some extent, it's begun to reach into other countries within Europe as well. I don't think to quite such an extent, but it's certainly beginning to get its its toe uh, in in other countries, if you like. The word, however, I think is something which people are increasingly familiar with. You know, I think that you've got two separate things almost going on. You've got the growth of, of policies and ideas being put into practice. And you've got the, the growing understanding of the label of the word and, and what the word means. And I think people are just beginning to get much more of a sense of, of the word and what the word means. Now, you talked about left and right and how they interpret woke in different ways. Now, many people on the right have seen this woke movement or do see it as a distinctly Marxist movement with its origins within Marxism. And I know that you write for Spiked and there are many people on the left who would say, well, maybe I'm a Marxist and I'm anti-woke. So how Marxist is this movement? Well, you see, I don't think it is Marxist at all. And one of the things I really try to take up in my book is why I don't think that woke has anything whatsoever to do with Marxism. And just to, to kind of come up with a few reasons for that. I mean, for one thing, Marxism for me is inherently linked to a sense of class politics of a kind of distinction between, to put it very crudely, a kind of bourgeoisie that owns the means of production and the mass of, of working class people who sell their labour power to make a living. And it seems to me that most woke thinking is fundamentally at odds to that. Woke is very hostile, it seems, to not only working class people in general, but even the whole idea that class is the fundamental deciding point, determining factor, if you like, of what your position is in society. Woke thinking is much more comfortable with identity politics, of splitting people up according to their gender, their race, um, their sexuality, all these different kind of identity groups rather than the more fundamental principle of class. So according to woke thinking, you can be kind of at the, the most oppressed people the most in the most oppressed group in society on the basis of your skin colour and your sexuality, even if your parents happen to be kind of incredibly wealthy and you might have all this inherited wealth, you can still be considered very, very oppressed. And to me, that, that completely turns Marxism on its head. Uh, it, it doesn't have any kind of faith in working class people and it doesn't see class as being the fundamental determining point of, of what goes on in the world. In fact, one of the points I make in my book is that woke thinking actually shores up the privilege, if you like, of the most elite sections of society. It allows them to appropriate the, the kind of genuine disadvantages experienced by lower class people, working class people. And it allows them to kind of keep those disadvantages for themselves or pretend that they experience all these disadvantages too. It allows them to even kind of construct this language, this set of principles, these kind of words that single off on and kind of mark their group out as being somehow superior to everybody else. Do you accept there are similarities between the woke movement and Marxists and Marxism. So, for example, people might argue that the class system has simply been replaced with what you talk about there, the identity system. So, you know, there's an oppressive identity, let's say white men, and there is the oppressed, which are sort of minority groups and, and essentially anyone who isn't a straight white man. And people also argue that it's a similar sort of revolutionary movement and both Marxists and woke people would 
let's say, for example, hate similar things, hate the sort of history of, of, of Britain or hate our institutions and want to replace them with their own year zero new versions, new forms of society. So it's a revolutionary movement and they've simply replaced class with identity. Mm -hmm. I think there's some truth in what you're saying there. I mean, particularly I would draw parallels, I guess, with Maoism in China, when you look at lots of the trends that became apparent with the Cultural Revolution, the kind of the shaming of individuals, the ritualistic forms of apology, the way that children in particular were manipulated to teach older people a lesson and to spread and disseminate within society a distinct set of values that was aligned with the dominant thought of the Maoist regime. I would certainly see an awful lot of parallels there. And, and I think that's not just kind of wishful thinking. You know, these, these parallels were made quite explicit if you look at what was going on within sections of the left, particularly in the 1970s. Uh, and France often comes back down to French intellectuals. There were kind of exchange trips going on between the kind of French left elite and China and Mao, and these lessons were being learned quite explicitly and taken back and adopted by left-wing movements in, in the West. So I think there are some very, very explicit and interesting parallels to be drawn in that way. But I guess my stumbling block is that even though I, I totally take on board what you're saying about lots of the language and lots of the surface features of Marxism being used in quite similar ways, I think it's just been twisted beyond all recognition so that oppression doesn't even have the same meaning nowadays, even though the same words are used, oppression um, is used in both instances. It doesn't have the same meanings that it would have done. That word doesn't even mean the same as it would have done 50, 60, um, 70 years ago when it was very much tied in with this, this understanding of social class and the relationship that working class people in particular had to the labour market. I think that that really is something quite distinct from the way, the more general way that woke people today can talk about oppression. But I think to me, the most fundamental point is the way that woke thinking seems to emerge from a real contempt for working class people. If you look at particularly, I think it's been very, very explicit since 2016 and the vote for Brexit, the vote for Trump, you know, woke has almost taken off in the wake of this kind of real disgust, for want of a better word, of working class people. You know, they're all racist they're obese, they can't look after their children properly. You know, they're all sexist, transphobic, homophobic, you know, they're gammon. All these insults, it seems sections of the woke left are very, very happy to throw at working class people. Whereas for me, Marxism is fundamentally a movement that would support working class people. When we talked of revolution as Marxists, it was about upturning the class system and putting working class people on top. If you have no faith in working class people, if you have just contempt for working class people, you don't want to do that. It's actually about keeping working class people in their place at the bottom of the heap and creating this new professional class of, of a kind of woke elite. We could go very far down the Marxist sort of rabbit hole and I could come back and say, well, actually, working class people generally don't support Marxism and the impact of Marxist regimes isn't fantastic for working class people or anyone else. But anyway, let's not do that. Uh, let's, I want to focus on the French issue very briefly, though, because that was an interesting point you made. I know that many of Mao's contemporaries in the early 1920s went to France, as you say, and, and, and were sort of educated there, which is absolutely fascinating. And there's also people who argue, such as Jordan Peterson, that many of these oic ideas came from French philosophy, Foucault and others. And this has been interpreted by American universities and sort of exported back to Europe. And I know that many Europeans hate this idea that wokeism comes from France, especially if you speak to French people. They say, no, this is, a, this is an American phenomenon or whatever. So how much, how much can we blame the French for, for the woke movement? <laughs> well, I'm always keen to blame the French for no, no, not really. <laughs> um, I think it's a, a, 
a tricky question. You know, it is a very, very tricky question because clearly, again, a bit like how you can draw some superficial parallels with Marxism. You know, I think you can trace one line of thinking of where have these ideas originated from, particularly in the sense of, of privileging identity. The other big thing that I think is, is very dominant in woke thinking more broadly is this obsession with language, obsession with words, with using the right words, of the language changing very rapidly. And each time it changes, you know, some of us kind of miss out and we fail to keep up and then we're kind of excluded from the woke club because we haven't kept up with the latest terminology. So I think the the obsession with identity, the obsession with language all of those things can really be traced back to what was going on in, in French intellectual thought in the 1960s and 1970s. But at the same time, you know, I think it would be a mistake to think that all the people who are now uh, currently working in our schools or universities, not in critical theory dominant departments, people who are in our civil service, you know, it's not like they're all sitting down at the weekend kind of reading Foucault and Derrida and kind of really imbibing all of this thought and thinking, well, do you know, what? I can't wait to get back to work on Monday to really put kind of Derrida's thought into action. I mean, Foucault, I think, would actually be quite challenging or push back against some of the kind of excesses of woke thinking. There's some kind of fairly positive ideas that emerge from Foucault. So I think you can't just blame what's gone on in the academy and you can't just blame French intellectuals. I think it, it's very much how, not just a question of how this has been interpreted, but, but how it's been interpreted and put into practice and how this has played out in conjunction with broader political trends that have happened within the US and the UK at the same time. I think uh, France does have a much stronger tradition of kind of protest, if you like, if you look at the Gilets Jaunes. And I think for that reason, some sections of French society, at least, have had to take much more account of, of kind of where people, where the general population of the country is at and what they're thinking. Whereas perhaps in this country, within our institutions, the elite have been able to become a bit more dominant, have things their own way, become a bit more comfortable in their position without the perception of that threat coming up from underneath. Now, this word woke and the sort of phenomenon itself has been studied hugely in the last few years. We've had these culture wars, of course. And to me, the word woke is so cliched and overused and you know, people could probably play a drinking game in this interview and, and be very drunk at the end of it, you know, based on the amount of times we say the word woke. Um, but I just wanted to know why you actually wrote this book. There's so many books on wokeness at the moment. What's What was your sort of reason behind it? What, I guess you wanted your own original take on it. I did, but it also just ties together a lot of things that I've been thinking about over a number of years. So as far back as kind of 2016, I think, yeah, 20, 2015, 2016, I wrote a book about academic freedom. I've been very interested in free speech and how free speech is restricted. And the title of that book is Academic Freedom in an Age of Conformity and kind of how, how threats to free speech don't just necessarily come from authoritarian laws or uh, kind of outright bans on what we can and can't say, but actually emerge from a group think as well. How when youngsters go to university, for example, they become aware of a, a kind of dominant consensus in, in relation to particular issues and they become aware that if they speak out, go against the grain of this dominant consensus on campus, they might not be kind of expelled. There may be no laws or rules or anything that they've broken, but the weight of, of social pressure to come back in line and say what the majority think can be quite overwhelming. So I've been interested in that. And then I wrote a book about feminism as well, kind of critical of many of the trends in, in modern feminism. And it seems like woke thinking, one of the things that most concerns me is the kind of soft authoritarianism that lies behind it. This idea that there is a consensus, a moral consensus that's forming. I actually think it is important that we can name that consensus um, and name this, this kind of thinking that's emerging. And I think one of the reasons why many people object to the word woke is precisely because they, they don't like having this kind of body of ideas called out 
it's much better if it can pass off as just being normal. You know, this is just what all common sense, right thinking, as in good thinking people believe. And of course, everybody is anti-racist, anti-sexist. And of course they are. But but what woke means is a particular approach to being anti-racist that's grounded in identity politics. And it really suits woke people if we think that this is just normal and not a particular one particular way of viewing the world. So I kind of like the word woke because it upsets people (laughs) who are woke and they would prefer that we didn't use any kind of label to identify a coherent or what seems to be becoming a coherent body of thought. Now, one person who thinks that wokeness is normal in a way, and not in a good way, is Ed West. And he makes a really interesting argument. I'm going to quote from an article he wrote recently, and I want you to respond. So he says, This is not some dark new age of cancel culture. However, it's a return to normality. Those who grew up in the late 20th century were living in a highly unusual time, one that could never be sustained a sexual and cultural revolution that began in 1963 or 1968. But it has ended. And, as all revolutionaries must do after storming the Bastille, they have built Bastilles of their own. So is wokeness a natural phenomenon in which a dominant group of people within society controls the narrative, as it were, is able to censor their opponents... And, you know, for example, Ed argues that this existed in, you know, sort of the 1960s and before, but there was a conservative majority and a conservative consensus there. So, you know, is wokeness really just getting back to normality in society and the last 50 years have been an exception rather than the rule in terms of openness and free speech and debate? Well, I can certainly see some of the logic to what Ed is arguing there, but I also think there are some very crucial differences as well. And to me, one of the things that strikes me about the woke elite that we have at the moment is that they deny the power that they possess. Um, I think in other eras, if you go back to the turn of the 20th century, certainly we have always had in in one form or another, uh, most societies have an elite uh, a professional elite or a, however you want to call it, a kind of upper class or an aristocracy or a, a professional elite. But I do think a number of things have changed. Like I, said, I, think, I think partly in the past, people were much more upfront and explicit about that. And everybody, I mean, particularly under, say, go back as far as feudalism, you know, it was very, very clear the rank order that everyone possessed. I think what we have today is an elite that denies they're an elite, an elite that denies the power, the privileges that they've got. And I think that is something quite distinctive and quite different for us to get our heads around. I mean it in far more than just a rhetorical sense. I think it makes it far more difficult for people who are not part of that elite to be able to identify and push back against the power that other people have over their lives. But I think also there are other more fundamental differences as well. I mean, I think the role that universities play in turning out a a graduate class, the times that Ed's referring to, if you go back 50, 60 years ago, you were looking at uh, well under 10% of the population going to university. So the group of people that were kind of in charge, if you like, either weren't graduates or weren't all graduates or, or many of the people, you know, you could work your way up into those positions without having had that benefit of having been to university. The differences, if you like, between somebody who was a manager and somebody who was a worker didn't seem quite so immense as the people today. There, there may have been a difference in salary, but there wasn't a, a moral difference. I think just the final point I'd make and another difference that I think is that, you know, we've talked for a number of years now about the impact of social media, of putting people into bubbles. So again, this is something that didn't exist 50, 60 years ago and how social media can have this effect of us making contact with people who are of a similar view to us. And so you think that your view then is the dominant view because you can can kind of curate your social media news profile to only get people who reflect back to you what you already think. 
you know, that's that's one thing. I think it's something that should perhaps concern us more than it does. But what really bothers me is how I think this notion of the bubble of the like-minded has extended way beyond that. So again, go back 50, 60, 70 years ago, people, most children in the country would have gone to their local school. They would have gone to the school that was in within walking distance. You know, now it's a much bigger thing for parents to choose the school that their child goes to, and they're choosing a school which aligns with their particular values. They move house to a street where people obviously have similar level of income to them that prices out people who can't afford to live in those areas, geographical areas, institutional positions, schools, or become colonized by people who think in the same way. So I think we've always had elites, but I think more than ever before, our elite today is is more out of touch, if you like, with the way that the rest of the people in society live than ever before. And is also denying the very fact that they are in this elite position. But you also argue that they're not only denying their being the elite, but they go... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So far as to say that they are actually the oppressed minority, and they, they cloak themselves within the language of oppression, and they present the masses as the oppressors. So can you expand a bit on that theory? Definitely. So, I mean, this is where the beauty of identity politics really comes into play because it allows people who um, perhaps may be very wealthy, but but I think the whole kind of nature of wealth has changed and our understanding of wealth has changed as well, where money that, that we might inherit nowadays or, or the kind of the resources that you have within your broader extended family actually count for a lot more nowadays than just the money that you might earn. So what this means is that somebody who I'm going to be, you know, playing your drinking game of a white bingo here now, and I know I'm, I'm tapping out all the cliches, but, you know, somebody who kind of runs a little independent coffee shop or, you know, a little microbrewery in a, a trendy part of London, but earns a pittance doing it but is kind of quite secure in the knowledge that their mum and dad (laughs) are going to be able to help them out if come the end of the month they are struggling to pay the rent or, you know, mum and dad may have actually been able to give them money to buy a house in that area so they're actually not worrying about paying the rent and they can afford to do the micro brewery or the coffee roasting thing, whatever it's called. But because they do that job, you know, they think they are the true working class people. Whereas you saw with the Canadian lorry drivers protest, for example, back at the beginning of this year, how many on the left were very quick to write these lorry drivers off as, oh, they are the middle class because don't you know they own these huge lorries. So, you know, I go to work doing this microbrewery and have a house that's been bought for me by my mum and dad but I'm the genuine working class, whereas these people who are working kind of 16 hours a day driving trucks, delivering vital goods from one part of the continent to the other, they're the upper class. <laughs> it completely flips reality on its head. But then I think you add to that the layer of identity politics and this kind of beatification of victimhood status, if you like, where everybody wants to be a victim nowadays, And your person who's running the microbrewery or the coffee roasting company, uh, who's also gay or black or transgender, you know, they become at the very, very top of the hierarchy of, of oppression. We talk about wokeness as an elite phenomenon, but maybe in some ways it's not. And there's two examples that I'll give you. The first is young people. I think young people are particularly attracted to this ideology, no matter 
who they are or their background. Maybe there, there's you know slight changes within you know maybe outside of London or whatever. But I would say you know this is just anecdotally, but almost all my friends and stuff you know they're all kind of woke and and, and they want to be moral and, and upright and everything else. So in that sense, you know maybe it's not so much of an an, an elite uh, phenomenon. And the other thing to point out is when the BLM protests riots happened in 2020. And this idea of taking the knee became a, a, a huge, uh, hugely popular phenomenon. Most British people, in, if you look to opinion polls, supported this, even though, as you rightly mention, BLM has some pretty extreme views. Its manifesto is revolutionary, etc. So maybe, in some ways, wokeness is quite popular among the majority of the people. I've given you an example there, and particularly among young people. Yeah, I think there's two different things going on there. I mean, I think, you know, maybe I'm going to sound a bit patriotic here, I don't know. But I think British people generally, and I mean that in the broadest, most inclusive sense possible, you know, I think we do have a a very, very strong sense of fair play, of justice, as much as some white people might like to suggest otherwise, you know, the people who I meet who are not woke explicitly, Everybody, it seems to me, you know, really, I don't meet racist people on a daily basis, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, people are not racist. They're not sexist. People are aware that that the times have changed and people have a strong sense of, of what's right and wrong, of, of fairness and unfairness. And I think this really does extend into every area of people's lives, of everybody's lives. People have a very strong moral sense of of fair play. And to me, I think that's one of the best things about about the British character, if you like. And I think when people first hear then about George Floyd, you know, somebody being killed at the hands of a police officer, your, your human instinct is to think, well, that's absolutely appalling. You know, how could this have been allowed to happen? I want to do something to make it known that I object to this. And I think that's an entirely good and positive sense that people have, a really good positive aspiration towards social justice. But I think the problem is that that then gets exploited and twisted and other meanings then get attributed to it. And then when people realise that these other kind of whole layers of meanings that they hadn't initially bought into are added on, and they then kind of put their hand up and raise questions, that's what, hang on a minute, you know, why is my child being taught this at school? You know, I'm not racist. But you're asking children in my child's class to kind of list their reasons for their white privilege. You know, why is this happening? They then get labelled as as racist for even questioning some of these basic assumptions, despite having this strong sense of, of fair play and justice and even equality, I would argue. I think that's one thing. Um, on young people, you know, I really do think that there are some kind of quite major generational differences emerging, which I do think should should concern us. And I think one of the reasons why this is happening is because woke is so dominant within the education system. And so I think what this means is that you've got an entire generation now of young people who've been through nursery, school, university, kind of being thoroughly imbued with woke thinking, either through just assemblies and the general culture of the school or through the content of the curriculum in citizenship classes, PSHG classes, even geography, English lessons, and and just just kind of socialised into thinking that this is just kind of normal, acceptable thought. But I don't think that means that young people are kind of all irredeemably woke and for all times. I think it just means that most young people have never been given the opportunity to actually think critically about many of these things. And I think the two things together, you know, this kind of innate sense of morality and fair play and justice combined with never having been given an opportunity to think critically about where woke policymaking might lead to, I think does make young people inherently more likely to take these ideas and values on board. But I do think there is scope for kind of opening people's eyes a little bit and getting people to think critically 
about what's going on and, and people, in my experience, do kind of respond well to that. It's really interesting understanding or attempting to understand why young people do support wokeness and woke ideas. And I want to talk about three values, and you mentioned one there, as to explain perhaps why this is going on. So the first one is morality. You talked about the sort of moral positioning of wokeness, almost in a Christian way, of sort of positioning themselves as the anti-racist, the anti-homophobic, anti-fascist, whatever. And this is that, you know, they're really taking the moral high ground. So that's one reason why one might be attracted to these ideas, and they're very simple ideas. The second reason is that these ideas have been presented as being anti-elite. As you say, the elites deny that they are the elites, and perhaps they, they take an old conservative elite that is long dead, that died decades and decades ago, and they still hold it up as this, this force that they are railing against. A bit like the French revolutionaries after the revolution who carried on talking about the Catholic elites in France, even though they were long defeated. So these are two things. And then the third thing is the idea of status and whether these ideas are high status or low status and who's associated with woke ideas and anti-woke ideas. And by the anti-woke movement being largely made up of, let's say, tabloid journalism, of sort of shouty commentators, of leave voting people, and you know, I've got nothing against any of those people, by the way, but the way that they've perhaps presented themselves or they are presented uh, within society isn't exactly the high status position that celebrities hold or whatever. So can you talk about those three, those three values that, that I just mentioned? Yeah, well, the first thing to say is just that I think you're absolutely spot on with all of them. And if I could sum up kind of the argument for how woke won, you've summed it up in a nutshell. You know, woke has won because it has presented itself as being on the right side of history, as being the the side that has the morally correct and upstanding position, and as being the kind of upstanding high status opinion. I think you're you're absolutely spot on on all of those things. And I think it it's absolutely true, you know, and if I was a young person growing up nowadays coming out through university, I think I would definitely be wanting to identify myself with um, the people who were woke because you'd be thinking, well, this is going to pave my way to get a good job, a kind of nice life for myself. Not only that, but a, an uncomplicated life. I won't be cancelled. I won't have to have arguments. I can sit in these training sessions in the workplace and I can just keep quiet and nod along. I don't need to stand up and put my head above the parapet. I don't need to attract trouble for myself. I just go along with the rituals. If they ask me to take the knee, it's far easier to go along with the performance, to take the knee, to be like everyone else, to fit in, to conform than it is to stand out. And, you know, that combined with exactly, as you say, the way the the kind of the other side, if you like, is presented as this unattractive rabble, the masses, the unattractive masses that you don't want to be part of. I do think makes it very, very alluring. And, you know, ultimately, I guess that is my argument as to why woke has won. But I don't want to sound defeatist about this. I think what woke has done very successfully is to hijack this rhetoric of anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-homophobia, for example. But I think actually my side can really take the moral high ground if we can find the right arguments, the right words, because my big argument against the kind of the woke worldview, if you like, is not for one second that I want to be racist and sexist and homophobic. It's actually that I think that they are dressing up their racism, sexism and homophobia in the language of opposing it. So if you take racism, for example, if you go back to the 1960s and the civil rights movement, to me, the idea of being colorblind, the idea of judging people by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin, um, the idea of moving beyond race, of there being only one race, the human race, those were incredibly progressive ideas that could have seen us really transcend race altogether as a, a superficial category, you know, no more than we have different color hair, you know, two people could have different color skin. It would be completely, utterly irrelevant to 
somebody's self-worth to somebody's idea of who they are. It's just a, a completely superficial feature. You know, to me, that was, was something very, very positive in that. What's highly regressive, it seems to me, is this drive to get people to kind of rethink of themselves, to re-racialize society, to start with even the youngest children, categorizing people according to their skin color, separating them off, you know, saying, because your skin color is this, you must think this, you know, you come with this sense of either inherent privilege or inherent disadvantage. And it, this is not just in relation to race, you know, you you see it in relation to gender, in relation to sexuality, where differences about people that should be minor, should be trivial, should be no more than a kind of point of interesting conversation in, in the pub, you know, just, just something really minor about people become the most important things that define who a person is. And, and all the old kind of prejudices that I really thought we were moving away from become reinvented and have new life breathed back into them. So even though I think woke thinking has kind of taken on that language and assumed the moral high ground, I actually think if we can find the right words, the right arguments, really push back, the moral high ground is there still to be won. And, and there are some very, very good moral arguments to challenge woke thinking that we need to make sure get out there. Now, I think, this is just my personal view, that the anti-woke movement has made these arguments consistently over the last few years, and they failed. And there's a sort of meme among kind of right-wing Twitter intellectuals that says the left are the real racists, and they're sort of being a bit satirical on like right-wing commentators or anti-woke commentators, as I said earlier, sort of shock jocks kind of shouting this on the radio. And I think that that message hasn't cut through, and this isn't a novel argument. People have been talking about this for a long time. Do you agree? Do, do you think the anti-woke movement has failed in this respect, despite making the argument? And why is that? Well, I think there have been a number of important victories for the anti-woke movement. And uh, you know, I think you can see those on kind of individual level. I mean, uh, and uh, it's kind of another cliche to talk about Elon Musk taking over Twitter and we'll try and create it as more of a platform for free speech, we can hope. But you can look at other institutions as well, like the Free Speech Union, for example. You know, some of the, the, the stories that are highlighted, the very fact that the Telegraph on a daily basis highlights stories of kind of the detrimental impact that, that woke thinking is having within institutions. And I would put Spiked up with that as well, the online publication that really helps shine a spotlight on these things. And it seems to me that I'm being very hypocritical because I've got a book called How Woke Won. But, you know, whenever the spotlight of democracy is turned on woke thinking, people not only object to it, but are able to push back against it. So if you look at a number of instances where instead of just tearing down a statue, for example, a local council has put it to a vote, a little referendum in the area, or if it was a question of changing a street name and the councils put that to a local vote, the public do push back against it. So despite having written a book called How Woke Won, um, I do think you can we can overstate it. I think I think it's one in capturing key institutions, but within the general population as a whole, I don't think woke has won. And I think the majority of people do challenge and think critically about these ideas. They just need more opportunity to be able to have their voices heard through referendums, votes, ballots, whatever it might be. And we need more organisations like the Free Speech Union spiked the Telegraph to shine a spotlight on what's going on and then more opportunities for people to be able to have their say on what's going on and you can really push back against it. Many of the Conservatives who are against this cultural revolution that they've seen become very fatalistic and nihilistic about the future. They become what has been termed as doomers. Think of Peter Hitchens and other commentators. I can see that you're not a doomer. And I think there's also a certain level of intellectual snobbery, perhaps among conservatives, sort of looking down on others. And I, maybe people could accuse me of doing that in my questions today. I don't know. Uh, but, I, you know, there's a bit of uh, nuance here. Douglas Murray describes in his book, The War on the West, 
a sort of cultural, again, a cultural revolution on what he sees as the West, but also white people specifically. Do you agree with him on his sort of thesis that this is a war on the West? Um, well, I do, but it's, it's a war on the West from within the West. And I think we've got to be careful about that. It's not a war that's coming from the outside where we've got an external enemy. The enemy is within, if you like. I've got to confess I've not read Douglas Murray's book yet, but I'm, I'm, I also guess without wanting to predict that that is the point that he's making, that, that this is a, a kind of an enemy within. Um, this is a, our biggest problem at the moment is, is self-loathing, is self-hatred. And, you know, again, the, one of the reasons why I'm not a doomster is if you look at, say, the Jubilee celebrations that we've just had this weekend, well, I'm a, a Republican, you know, I'm not a monarchist at all, but I was still out there kind of enjoying the four days off, glass of Prosecco, nice slice of cake, you know, it's good. I think the thing that that, that showed me was that these national occasions have the power to bring people together in this country a lot, lot more than your identity politics does. So, you know, we're in Pride Month. Pride will be a massive thing coming from all our, you know, national institutions again. But also I live in Canterbury. If I walk down Canterbury High Street now, I'm sure my bank will be having a rainbow flag outside. You know, Marks and Spencers will have its rainbow flag but that doesn't have the same capacity to pull together people across generational differences, across different parts of the UK, you know, and, and the Jubilee celebrations, even if you're not a monarchist like me, you know, there's something in that national identity that is able to bring people together, you know, that, that shows that this enemy within, if you like, this national self-loathing, I think is a real elite preoccupation. The party poopers who were sat there this weekend saying, oh, you know, this is all the plebs having a, a cheap jolly, you know, isn't it all a bit tacky and yucky? They were the ones who lost out. They missed an opportunity to have a bit of good fun, you know, and um, meet their neighbours, have a bit of a community get together share in some common sense of of celebration, which I think was was a really worthwhile good thing to do. Let's briefly talk about social media. You mentioned Elon Musk earlier. It's obviously a place where, let's say, even a majority of the debates around the culture wars are taking place. Have you noticed a shift in the left's or the kind of woke's view of social media over the last decade? Because in 2008, it was lauded as this great output, Facebook was specifically, for Barack Obama to get elected. And it was seen as this fantastic um, you know, new medium for people to, to find truth and, and speak truth to power and whatever. And then in 20, 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, it was seen as the new purporter of disinformation by the Russians, by propaganda, by lies, which uh, sort of hoodwinked people into voting for Brexit and Trump. So have you noticed a, an interesting shift in, uh, in their views towards social media platforms? Yeah, definitely. And I think the takeover by Elon Musk has been so interesting, irrespective of whatever happens next, you know, even if he drops the whole thing and it doesn't actually happen, because I think it really provided a moment of clarity where people came out with some very, very explicit statements about the, the horror, <laughs> the potential horror that might be unleashed if we actually have free speech on Twitter. And, and how can we, how can we make this stop? You know, this would be the most terrible thing. And I think it kind of revealed again, as I was saying earlier, the kind of contempt that many of the, the work left have for ordinary people, because the only way that they seem to be able to conceive of free speech is now as hate speech. I think when I was younger, you know, that that phrase hate speech didn't even really exist. You know, people said bad things and there was, you could say, hateful, horrible things. But the, the kind of the, the phrase hate speech as such just just didn't really exist. Whereas now it seems like free speech and hate speech are seen as being completely synonymous with one another. You know, the only thing people would want to do if they were given free speech would be to unleash this bile and hatred and spread misinformation. And then it almost seems to be 
in some people's minds as if they've drawn a foregone conclusion that you have free speech and then um, Trump will obviously be reelected. You know, if he if he immediately gets back onto Twitter, he will be reelected. I mean, if nothing else, you know, to me, that really shows their own insecurities and the weaknesses that they have in their own arguments, because to me, free speech is the great leveler. You know, if I have free speech, then you have free speech. If I disagree with you, I can use my free speech to argue against you, but you can also argue against me. The only reason why you would want censorship in that context is if you have absolutely no faith in the power of your own arguments to convince anyone of anything. And I think the rumoured takeover by Elon Musk really unleashed that sense, you know, where people were were making it very explicit. Well, we can't possibly argue back or have anything to say to these people. So we must just restrict their free speech. I think the other thing it did very, very nicely, but also quite scarily, is show the relationship between kind of private sector, big business and the state and how these two things now move hand in hand to bring about censorship. How there's not that clear distinction, how private companies like Twitter and Facebook are very happy to parcel out censorship to the state when it suits them. But absolutely, it works the other way around as well. The state is very, very happy to have private companies like Twitter enacting their own censorship policies so the state can appear to be taking a back seat. And almost as soon as it appeared that that Twitter might not be censoring quite as much as it has been in the past, you got calls on the state to step up to the plate to bring in more things like the online harms bill, online safety bill that we know is coming in in the UK, but also from the US um, and the EU for governments to institutions to step up and, and start regulating even more. So I thought for those two reasons, it was a very clarifying thing. And you're right, you know, the whole discourse around social media has completely changed. Thank you so much, Joanna, for joining us. Completely enlightening conversation. Absolute pleasure. Some really thought-provoking questions really made me think. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.